0: Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Faith. And wave announcements, they're all in the bulletin. You know, you can read that at your leisure. As we interact with God's Word tonight, there's some notes available. If someone wants a set of notes and doesn't have them, wave your hand, and maybe uh, Randy or Jer will make sure you get a set. Anyone want a set that doesn't have a set? Hey, Billy back there. Anyone else? Let's pray together. Oh, and Jeff wants this up too. Let's pray together. Father, we realize that pain and suffering and trials of various types are part of the world in which we live. But we know that in Christ, the victory has been won and we can live well in a broken world. We consider your word and its application tonight. We want to be doers as well as hearers. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. 20-year-old David Coop, on a springtime climb in the mountains of New Hampshire, was hit by a huge falling rock, slipped from the steep mountainside, and in brief moments was no longer there as his body hangs suspended from his companion, 700 feet above the valley floor. A mere statistic from the summer? No. As each of the others, this boy of 20 was a beloved child of his parents, C. Everett Coop and his wife. This great surgeon had saved the lives of countless children, operating on babies in great need, giving them years of life in place of the imminent death they were facing. David was also a son of the living God, in active service for the Lord, and seemed to have so very much to do in the needed area, making truth known to his contemporaries, who who were searching in the dark. The Bible he left behind, when he so suddenly was absent from his body his family and others who needed him was marked in a way that his family knew the last verse that he had read before going on that climb his bible was open to verse 24 in the book of jude now unto him that is able to keep you from falling to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy god was able to keep him from physically falling how could he fall Impossible. Why? John and Betty Stamm had finished years of preparation in college and Bible school. God had brought them together to complement each other in the work that seemed to lie before them for years in China, where they had learned the language and were prepared for an unusual service for the Lord. Their first baby was in the arms as they were captured by a band of teenage communists in the mid-thirties. How could it happen that Betty, who wrote this poem, afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of what? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear His welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of what? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a purest heart, darkness, light, O oh, heaven's art. A wound of his counterpart. Afraid of what? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptized with blood. A stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of what? The two of them were led through the streets in their underwear, hands tied behind their backs. Their baby was left behind in her snuggle bunny on the bed in the room where they had been in prison for the night. How could it be that this well-prepared missionary couple with so many praying for them could have their heads placed on a chopping block with a sharp knife at the back of their necks? So suddenly they were absent from their bodies, their heads severed and rolling in the dust. How could it be that an old Chinese Christian so willingly offered to take the baby's place and placed his own head where the baby's head would otherwise have been? A life for a life. And two others snapped off. How could it be possible? Why? We live in a fallen world that brings with it pain and suffering and trials of many types. And it behooves us to have a theology of suffering, of trials, of pain. To learn to suffer well because we face them. We face relational struggles. We face financial problems. We face physical struggles. We face mental struggles, emotional difficulties, job and school struggles, and spiritual struggles, as we touched on last week. And as you think about the world in which we live, we need to remember that Genesis 1 says that God created the universe and it was good, it was very good. But the fall took place, as we touched on last week, and the impact of the fall was very great. It influenced relationships. We all have relational difficulties. It influenced the relationship with God, and we struggle in responding with God. We face death. We face physical trials, pain, suffering, the curse on the ground pain and childbearing, spiritual death, and so on. All of that a result of the fall. But God is not to be blamed for suffering. Satan and Adam, if you want to place blame, you can place it there. And last week we concluded by saying all is due to Adam and Eve's choice Not to trust God. And in the midst of our trials and struggles, whatever tight they may be, the temptation to be bitter in trials is not from God, but our own sinful nature. Let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter one. I don't know if you've ever been at the point in life where you're tempted to become bitter in a trial. To say, why me, whatever type of trial it may be. But there is a temptation. Why would God allow two individuals who prepared for ministry in China to have their heads severed? Why would God allow five missionaries <clears throat> in South America to be killed by the Aqua Indians? Why would God allow someone who loves him to go through years of pain and suffering? Why would God allow two believers to end up in a divorce? Now, there may be a temptation to be bitter. And in the context of trials... In verses 2 through 12, he talked about trials. He talked about considering it pure joy in trials. In verse 2, he goes on, talks about perseverance in verse 12. And then in verse 13, James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. When tempted, don't say, God is tempting me. God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Rather, James says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed tempted to respond incorrectly in a trial tempted to become bitter tempted to say i want to run from this i don't like it the temptation comes from within within you I'll give an example from my own life very recently <clears throat> Saturday morning, I went out to jog and trying to build up my distance in jogging. And uh, I got half to the halfway point, and I turned around and, you know, took a little break, walked for a little while. And I thought to myself, this is really work this morning. Then I get back to the house, and I thought, you know, this is really, really, really work this morning. And then I thought back over the last few weeks, I thought, you know, seems to be something happening with my lungs again. And I thought, Lord, again? It's not new, it occasionally happens. But there was a temptation to be bitter. Why, Lord? But where did that come from? From within. Don't blame Satan. Don't blame the world system. Take responsibility. Failure to take responsibility when we're tempted to be bitter will result in a deep bitterness rather than joy and maturity. Avoid the blame game. G.K. Chesterton wrote perhaps the shortest essay in history. The London Times asked various writers for essays on the topic, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton replied, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. He had life down pat. What's wrong with the world? We can look and blame everyone else. We can find fault with everyone else. Who cares what everyone else does? I need to deal with myself. And when it comes to trials, whether it's relational trials, financial difficulties, mental battles, emotional, when we're tempted to be bitter, we need to look at ourselves. Can't blame anyone else. Well, we can blame someone else, but it only results in bitterness. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. By the way, the temptation to be bitter is not sin. Because in verse 15, then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So we may be tempted to be angry and bitter about a trial. That's not sin. But when we yield to it and say, okay, God, I'm going to nurse this bitterness a little, you know, and we let it be there, then that becomes sin. Number five, see suffering as a result of a lack of trust. See suffering as a result of a lack of trust. First Satan, then Eve, then Adam, now you and me. We're tempted not to trust God. A lack of trust, we're not taking God at His word as central. In light of James 1, 2 through 12, a choice not to rejoice in trials is a choice not to trust God. James 1 in verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I think many times when it comes to a trial, we come across a trial, we're tempted to be bitter, and then we take us some time to adjust and get our focus correct, you know, to where we rejoice. But not rejoicing is you know, a lack of trust. We suffer because of the choice of Satan and Adam and Eve, but we're not to blame. Or to trust. And that requires choices. A choice to rejoice. Why? Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. And he goes on in verse 5 if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. See, when we choose to trust rather than choose to be bitter, when we choose to rejoice rather than choose to be bitter, God begins to do a work or continues to do a work in our lives and an example, and it impacts others. In a seminary class, that was probably in about 15 years ago now, up at Baptist Bible Seminary, a new prophet, never met the man before, The first day of class, probably not into the class more than a half an hour, I said to myself, there's something different about this prof. I thought, I'm not sure what it is. There's just something different about him. You know, I made a mental note of that. I try to read character of people and just read people. I might not know what anyone wears, you know, if they had a new dress on or a new suit or anything or a different set of clothes, but I try to read people and where they're at. And about halfway through the semester... The profs, just in passing, said, uh, years ago I was in an automobile accident and I spent a year in the hospital. And immediately a bell rang in my head. Ah, that's what's different about him. He's been through some deep trials and he chose joy rather than bitterness. And it came out in his life. Just the way his demeanor, the way he responded. So when we suffer, it's a lack of trust of Adam and Eve and Satan. But in light of the suffering we go through, it becomes greater if we don't trust in what he has done. And in a way of encouragement, I would encourage you to think, encourage others to think Biblically. Encourage others to think biblically. Your parents, your mate, children, fellow believers, co-workers, neighbors, friends. Encourage them to think biblically. All humans face trials. But to think biblically. And that opens doors for evangelism. It opens doors for sharing Christ with others and walk through them graciously and boldly. There's one thing the world cannot figure out, how someone can go through trials, whatever type they may be, and not become bitter. Unbelievers pick up on that very, very quickly. And I think that's one of the reasons an unbeliever might ask a reason of the hope within a believer. You've been through a lot over the years, whatever type of trial it may be. But you're not bitter, you're not angry. What's going on in your life? Think in a biblical way. So we think about trials. Let's reflect on Christ. Take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And the crowds are coming to Jesus, and he's teaching them. Verse 1, Now when he saw the crowds, he, Christ, went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me reread that verse and paraphrase it. Blessed are those who recognize they can't handle life, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, I can't handle life. I need help. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek people accepting the circumstances that come into their life without resisting them, without becoming bitter. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Lord, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this difficulty, I'm hungering for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So as you go through a difficulty, you reach out to someone else and extend mercy to them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Lord, I want to be pure in heart as I get through this difficulty in life. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. I think to a large extent sum up what Christ desires in our lives. Did you think about the life of Christ as he was on this earth? You could turn to Matthew 6, but we won't tonight. He lived a contented life, he surrendered to his Father, he accepted pain and suffering and trials as the norm in a fallen world. You say, What trials did Jesus go through? Would you ever consider his being born as a trial? Here he is, having existed in eternity past, he and the Father and the Spirit having intimate communication, enjoying one another for eternity past. And then what happens? He lays that aside to take upon human form, and he's confined to a womb for nine months. He is born. He obeys his mom and dad. He's rejected repeatedly by the religious leaders. He dies on a cross, the tree that he made to grow, or the part of the tree that he made to grow. He had many relational struggles. Read through the Gospels. Jesus get into trouble with most everybody. And relational struggles with the twelve. Relational struggles with the religious leaders. Probably didn't have a lot of relational struggles with the poor and the sick. You know, he ministered to them, but a lot of relational struggles. He had spiritual struggles. As he's in the garden, Father, it would be possible to remove this cup from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. So when he's the great high priest for us, he knows how to minister. Christ was creator, but lived in a fallen creation. Christ was creator. He lived in a fallen creation. Philippians 2 talks about that, but we're going to read several verses from Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scoring its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Mm. Reflect on the Gospels and the life of Christ. He suffered. Financially, he suffered. You say, what do you mean he suffered financially? Nowhere to lay his head. Didn't own a home. Taxes are due. Go catch a fish. And, uh, you know, take the coin out of its mouth. He suffered Physically. He was tired quite often. When he was beaten at his trial, I don't think that was a piece of cake to take. But yet he remained faithful. He died well. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. In the epistles, there's a fair amount said about suffering. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 11, at least a portion of the chapter. Hebrews 11, I'll begin reading with verse 1. Now keep in mind, Hebrews 11 comes after chapters 1 through 10. That's no profound statement, I understand that. But in chapters 1 through 10 the writer's been saying over and over again, Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Aaron. Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than the Old Testament system of sacrifices. He's been saying over and over again, true faith perseveres. True faith perseveres. And in chapter 11, we come across people who recognize that Christ was better than Old Testament system of sacrifices. We come across people who have persevered. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. And certainly, of what, certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You know, sometimes when we think about creation, we try to prove to people that God created. Creation and accepting creation is an act of faith. You can't prove creation dogmatically, it's an act of faith. The difference is, if you're talking to someone who buys into evolution, you might say, were you present when the world evolved? No. Who do you know that was present when the world evolved? I don't know of anyone. Well, I'm convinced God created the heaven and the earth. I accept that by faith. And I happen to know the one that was present when it happened. God. But we accept it by faith. He goes on, by faith, Abel offered God a better Sacrifice, and Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith he still speaks even though he was dead. So Abel must have brought an offering according to what God had told him to do and Cain did not. He lived by faith. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen and holy fear, built an ark to save his family. <clears throat> by faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Now think about Noah, and I'm assuming that before the flood, there was no rain. <clears throat> the water, or the earth was watered, you know, by a heavy dew and so on. And God comes along and finds Noah, he's a righteous man, and he says, Noah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark. And I'm going to judge the earth. <clears throat> what do you do with an ark? You get in it. And if you get in an ark, you need water. Noah, by faith, obeyed. Now think about that. God says, Noah, build an ark. What for? I'm going to judge the earth. With what? Water. What water? Are you sure you need an ark? Isn't there some other way? there's no indication that Noah argued with God. By faith, he acted. By faith, the ark is done. By faith, the animals were brought to Noah. And by faith, they went into the ark. By faith, he was in there with his family over a year. Over, yeah, I'm remembering that right, I think. <clears throat> and by faith he came out verse 8 by faith Abraham when called to go to a place he would later receive his inheritance obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going hey uh, Abraham or Abram at that time <clears throat> I want you to leave the land where you're living well where am I going you'll find out well where am I going I'll let you know well where am I to head well go north To start off with. How far north? I'll let you know. By faith. He's leaving his homeland. Can you imagine what would happen today if uh, Alan and Peg loaded up their kids and uh, said to their families, We're leaving home. Where are you going? I don't know. You don't know where you're going, but you're leaving. Yeah, leaving. Well, we're gonna start west. How far west are you gonna go? I don't know. Where are you going in? I guess we'll take our set of four wheels. How long are you gonna be gone? I don't know. How are you gonna take care of yourself? I don't know. You're crazy. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Faith. Verse 11, by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was unable to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. By faith. The whole Jewish race from Abraham. But it doesn't stop at the Jewish race. Many of the people of the Mideast today are descendants of Abraham. How many children did Abraham have? At least two. He had Ishmael, and he had Isaac. And then after Sarah died, he married. And he had, I'm trying to remember, quite a few more children. His descendants are very numerous, but by faith. And notice the text says, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. But he was past age, it says, and Sarah herself was barren. And that was in faith issue. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son at age 75. Joke, joke. Well, he finally had a son by Hagar. And then at age 99, God came to him and said, hey, Abraham, Ishmael is not the promised son. You're going to have a son about this time next year. By faith. And you read on about people that lived by faith. Verse 29, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea on, as on dry ground, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Do you ever think about that military strategy? Here's <clears throat> Joshua the new commander-in-chief, Moses, is no longer on the scene. They came across the Jordan River at flood stage. And God says, Joshua, I want you to march around the city of Jericho one time each day for six days. On the seventh, time, or seventh day, I want you to walk, walk around seven times and then blow your trumpets. One of the generals says, hey, Joshua, what are we doing This is the second day walking around this city. When are we going to tackle it? Don't worry. The generals get together and say, we've got to do something about Joshua. This guy's flipped his cork. This is the fifth day of walking around this city. It's a stupid military strategy. And after the third time around, on the seventh day, the generals say, Let's get rid of this guy. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. The people, by faith, walked around the city. Stupid military strategy, if you want to call it that. But they obeyed. When in history did a nation ever walk around a city thirteen times, and on the thirteenth time around throw? Blow their trumpets and the walls fell. Never. By faith. By faith, in verse 31, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab and her family did not die, <clears throat> she took in these spies. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And you can read on of other things that were done by faith. As you read the epistles, God calls us in the midst of trials and difficulties that come our way, whatever form they may be, to live by faith. What does that entail? We act on Scripture. We recognize that the trials we go through here are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We recognize that what God allows into our life, He can take and work it for good. We recognize that God, as Creator, says, In your trials, rejoice. Sounds stupid, <clears throat> but I live by faith, I will obey. God tells us to ask for wisdom, I live by faith, I will obey. <clears throat> That's faith. The epistles call us to live by faith. So see Everett Koop, who was a surgeon general for a number of years. I think it was under Ronald Reagan's presence, if I remember correctly. <clears throat> Great surgeon, skilled, <clears throat> done some surgeries on babies that had never been done before. How was he going to live by faith? When his son was killed. You no know, due to fall. By rejoicing in a trial. And not becoming bitter. How does my sister-in-law Diane. <clears throat> and her family live by faith. In the midst of Orville dying. <clears throat> at a younger age. Choosing to Rejoice. Resting God's grace and reaching out and encouraging others. How to those of in our church who have lost children live by faith, by choosing to accept that we live in a fallen world, to depend upon God, to rest in His grace and to have an attitude of joy and seek His wisdom. That's living by faith. Rick mentioned about his grandson praying for his daughter and family, still struggling with the death of their son. How does Rick live by faith? Accepting it? We live in a broken world. Seeking Christ, resting in Christ, and seeking to have an attitude of joy. See, faith does not see the outcome. Faith sees God and what he says, or what he said, and lives in light of it. See, if you see the outcome, there's no need for faith. Faith takes God at His word and lives in light of it. Years ago, when I first developed some physical problems, I was at a crossroads in life. I would either live by faith or I would live by sight. There was a process in time where I said, okay, Lord, whatever comes. If I don't live very long and my wife and children have to go on with life without me, that's okay. But either way, I'm pounding a stake in the ground. Whatever comes, whatever life I have left, I want my focus to be one of faith, one of joy, one of acceptance of my trials. I want my life focus to be that direction. And Lord, when I deviate at all, bring me back on track. And he's done that quite frequently. (laughs) And my encouragement, whatever trial you go through or whatever you may face, set your focus on. I want to live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in the midst of a broken, fallen world, we have Christ. He is faithful. And as we'll touch on in two weeks, we see how to live and respond in light of what we have in Christ. May we be found faithful. For your glory, which in Christ's name I pray.